Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Deeply Talks conference call series. I'm Lara Satrakian, the executive editor of News Deeply, and I'm so happy to welcome you to today's call. For those who are joining us for the first time, these calls are a regular feature, bringing together our networks of readers and experts to really examine questions and advance ideas around women's advancement. Please keep in mind to tweet us using the hashtag Deeply Talks if you'd like to ask our guests any questions or make any comments that you'd really passionately like us to mention on air. On behalf of the entire team at News Deeply, welcome to this talk, this session today with Cynthia Nimmo, President and CEO of the Women's Funding Network. Cynthia is a longtime leader in this space with a passionate commitment to systems change. She runs the Women's Funding Network, a philanthropic network dedicated to women and girls, and it's been around for more than three decades. So it's really a stalwart and committed organization in terms of funding and empowering women and girls. Cynthia also advises foundations, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies on advancing social impact. Uh, prior to joining the philanthropic sector in 2003, Cynthia helped develop iVillage.com, the first online network for women. Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Firstly, could you tell us and our listeners a bit about your journey? What brought you to doing this work? Yes. And as you said, you know, I've been in it for 15 years, which I can hardly believe. And as I look back on the journey that I had, in some ways it feels um, like there have been many twists and turns, but you know how these things are. You look back and you see how they really were flowing in the same direction. And it's definitely the case for me. I, you know, when I got out of college, I immediately landed in the U.S. Senate working for a senator. And it was a very exciting time. This is 25 years ago. It was the year of the woman. And I think about that sometimes because I think about, boy, how much it still is the year of the woman um, every year. I mean, really? Like, I mean, really, you know, but, but at that point, what that was, was um, referencing was how many women were being elected to office. And so I had the opportunity to watch up close and firsthand how policies were made. How are these decisions made that affect our lives? And that really influenced me. And, and when I left there to join what at that time was this very fledgling field of kind of online community using um, new mediums, new technology to connect people, millions of people, and in this case, women, um, online to share information and to learn from each other. Um, I, when, I, when I left that and was looking for something that was in the nonprofit world, I found Women's Funding Network. And I just felt like the right thing for me because coming from the for-profit sector and before that government, I, um, I guess I looked around to see what could make the most change. And I'm very realistic. I understood immediately that for there to be equality, there would also have to be money. You'd have to have a way to pay for it. And Women's Funding Network has always been and was built, built on a premise that women would fund the change that they wanted. So that's a bit about you know, how I came to this. And as I look back on this, of course, I have not been there for here for 30 years, but, but what was true then is true still today, that women are putting their own resources, they're funding other women, they're identifying who are the leaders. And I, I, when I look around and I speak a bit and I am in a lot of different circles and I hear that word disruptive being thrown around a lot, it feels like that's the hot thing, right? Um, and things aren't really interesting in this instance, there's some way they're, they're disruptive. And I think, my gosh, nothing upended philanthropy more than this notion of women coming to the forefront, this is over 30 years ago, to fund the change that they wanted to see. How does the network work? 
who's in it, what are you trying to accomplish, and how do you make decisions around programming and investments? Well, we are a connector and we're a hub so that our, for our members, members started out being these women's foundations that were being established, again, some several decades ago. And now it's really expanded to include funding entities, any funder um, that has some focus on women and girls on gender equity. These days, there are many corporate foundations that have that perspective and lens. There might be family foundations with that lens. There are individual women, of course, many, who also want to know, how do we get involved in this? And so um, any organization, any individual that is funding women and girls is welcome to join us as a member. And again, what we're doing is not deciding you know, for them what's being funded. That's, that's the the reason why they're joining us, but we are ensuring that we're tracking what's going on. We're finding the best programs that can cross um, borders. So if something's working really well in one state or one country, we make sure everybody hears about it. We create places physically or virtually for this information to be shared. And that's, you know, essentially how we function. And our members now in the U.S., we're in 40 of the 50 states and we're in 20 other countries as well. That sounds like the systems change part. You're sort of watching really over is. and importing lessons. Yeah. So how has the landscape for funding women and girls changed in recent years? And, and how is the Me Too movement impacting that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it has grown and expanded enormously, including the funding landscape, as you're saying, because not only are, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe some of the longstanding foundations that have existed wanting to um, really elevate the work that they're doing uh, for women and girls and to learn and be connected, but more women are. And that includes women who are um, investing with their capital. And what we're hearing when we talk to the financial sector and to wealth managers is how frequently now they're being asked for, um, for products, for services that are helping to funnel um, money, all kinds of money that women have to gender equity. I think that with the Me Too movement and, you know, it's really, I would say, mainstreamed the conversation and the need where people from all of all walks of life understand that when we talk about needing to have gender equity, what we really mean is women and girls have to have a voice, have to be heard, have to have opportunities to be fully present and seeing, and with something like the Me Too movement, understanding how much that is not happening. And that includes in, in professional settings. And showing that it isn't enough when we're talking about women being economically secure, it's not enough to have a job, not enough to have a good job. They have to work in a space that values them. And something like Me Too made it so apparent that that is not happening in a lot of places. And that's different than things like equal pay, which is something else that many of our members work toward. It is, has to do with how a person is, um, is, is treated, frankly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There was an ad plastered all around New York City for Elvest, the gender lens investing platform, Sally Krawcheck's yes. uh, platform. And it, it was fantastic. It was fascinating. The ad just said, we don't just believe you, we believe in you. I like, that's, right. that's an axis on which a lot of the stuff turns. It was really interesting. It, and, if it, you know, it, does it really move capital? It, do, do you have a sense measurably or just anecdotally that it is 
making more money available for women and women, you know, women directed programs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we're seeing it. We always hope that there's more, definitely. And for many decades, when this was being tracked by a lot of research organizations, the finding was, well, if we look at just philanthropy, that 6% of philanthropic dollars were going toward programs for, for women and for girls. Um, so we ourselves aren't tracking that in the bigger landscape, but what I am seeing and experiencing is that it is increasing. And we have examples like Ms. Foundation for Women just announced a five-year campaign where they will be investing $25 million in um, programs that are serving specifically women of color and will be um, led by women of color. So these are real dollars that we're talking about. Global Fund for Women last year invested $10 million in women and girls around the world. Um, we have this happening throughout the United States and the money is coming from communities where each of these women's foundations is, is, it lives and resides, but also coming from all around the world. You know, our members that are in other countries, in most cases, they are the sole institution that's focusing 100% on gender equity. And so they are both um, sort of establishing this, this notion of philanthropy and working to find and identify women and girls with solutions to the biggest challenges and lifting them up to be leaders. We have a question coming from Alexandra Solomon at the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. As traditionally harmful industries, oil and gas, mining, tobacco, transition towards sustainability, what are the opportunities for investors to ensure that the changes are gender transformative? How do we ensure gender is prioritized in ESG reporting? Any thoughts on that? Well, one thing that we say, and that again, a lot of the people that we talked to in finance are, are suggesting is, if you are investing, you have to ask the question. And it could be as simple as, um, are women on the board of a company that you're investing in? How are, um, in the areas, you know, geographically, are there programs that are supporting women and girls? Um, what does the supply side look like in this case? And we have really excellent examples of, of some of the bigger global chains like Coca-Cola, who we've worked with, who have invested They've got this initiative called five by 20 where they want to change the lives of 5 million women by the year 2020, not just change, but improve their economic standing. And they start by looking at the supply side and, um, and how, how are they working up and down the, the supply chain and, and women working in their um, various offices around the world. What are the programs being offered to them to support and increase their leadership? Got it. Another question from Stephanie Tholand at the Population Media Center. How is the network measuring success or effectiveness of your investments? And what are you requiring of grant recipients when it comes to impact measurement? So each one of our members looks at this slightly differently. What is in common across all is the, the focus on, on systems change, which as you know, is much harder to count than um, say just numbers of people. So what that means is Sometimes you can count that, like in uh, the state of California, two of our members were um, very involved in helping to pass a recent law that will ensure that there are um, at least one woman on a board of directors for publicly held companies. That number will increase to three. So that's something that we can track and we can count. But really what it comes down to is asking questions of partners that are being funded, like how, has this, how is behavior changing? 
And then for who? So that you're beginning to count critical mass. And the other big part is, have any policies changed? Because this is a lot of what our members do besides um, funding is advocating and educating so that they're reaching out to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of organizations that they work with, but also to elected officials to say, here's what we see happening. We've done this research um, in Colorado, in Mississippi, in Minnesota, wherever it might be. This is what the status of women and girls looks like today when we look at um, mm -hmm. just the economy. So we're gonna track this and look to see what might be changing. So there's an example, um, again, in Colorado where the created a, a report and a toolkit for how to get more women into STEM, but not just how to get them and how to advance and support them. So that is something that can be counted as people are using, as companies are using it to recruit and say, okay, so what do your numbers look like now? Do you think that from what you can sense, the philanthropic arena is relatively open-minded about what impact looks like on the ground, or have we become really quite fixated on measurement and evaluation in, in, a, in, a, in a numerical and sort of quantitative mm -hmm. form. Mm -hmm. You know, that has long been the issue, really. <clears throat> and it makes sense because anybody who is funding or investing or any woman, even if, you know, what you're giving is $100, you want to know that it's, it's going towards something that's making sense. And yet, this kind of change that we're talking about takes time. We're in it for the long game. So when we look at, again, how the field is changing, it's not just millions of dollars that are going into invest and, and fund um, women's leadership. And we're seeing an increase in everything from women's entrepreneurship um, to, you know, STEM programs for girls. But it is also looking to see um, what, what's really changing and how can we, how do we encourage people to stay with it because something like me too did not actually happen overnight and time's up this these started 10 years ago it's just that people hadn't heard about it and when i look at most recently i was with an um, organization that held a summit called she the people which was one of the first gatherings for women of color running for office or in office that um you could, let's say that you sponsor that, you could say, okay, great, there were 600 women there, that's fantastic. I would encourage anybody who is in this to not let it end there. Look to see a year from now, who else has run for office? How has that whole field increased? How many more women of color, in this case and specifically, um, are involved and running and voting? I wonder, I mean, such an interesting snapshot there, especially for women of color in the United States. How do you think the access to capital gap looks today? What, who, who's being impacted by it most and, and how is it holding us back? The gap? Mm-hmm. I think it's holding us back in almost every walk of life. And it's why we do this work. I think that Yes, we can look at the numbers that show how many more women um, entrepreneurs there are and are wanting to start a business. And what will go along with that is the challenge in accessing capital. You can look at how many more women are running for office. It's, real, it's exciting. And what will go along with that, again, is underfunded campaigns. We can look at girls' leadership. 
which we know is critical. This is the next generation of leaders when we're talking about shifting the way that people view gender, male and female, and wanting to ensure that everybody is learning, um, or re basically relearning what are sort of the normative um, possibilities and behaviors. And that the reason why our work is here and why we exist is because it's been so underfunded. So I guess when you look at the gap, you can look at it in, in a couple of ways. You can be very linear about it and say, well, okay, here's the pay gap. And that's clear and there's lots of statistics that support and show Okay, well, it's 85 cents on the dollar that women are making compared to men. And when you disaggregate the data, you can see how that's affecting various women, white women, black women, Latina women. Each of those numbers looks different. Native women. And you can get behind that. And you can hope that companies will do the right thing. Like Salesforce a couple of years ago, their CEO did a voluntary salary audit and then invested millions of dollars to make it right. But that's, when we're talking about critical mass, we're waiting for that to spread and to spread like fire so that it isn't just people asking and waiting for it to happen. And this is what I was saying in the beginning, we have to be funding it. We have to advocate and say, we, there has to be equal pay. And there are seven or actually it's eight states now that have legislation um, requiring that. But that's just a tiny handful out of 50 in the United States, as an example. So, yep. so with less access to capital, women find it harder to get started and of course, harder to keep going. They like. do, and the bigger problem is that it leads to the wealth gap, which is different even than a pay gap and different than saying, I couldn't get access to capital to get something started. What it means is if you are a woman, if you're a girl and you're starting out and you're going along the track, you're going to school, you're going to college. The research shows that as soon as you get out of college, from the moment a girl finishes, a young woman, if she's making less money than her male peer, and this is for a similar job, same skills, same experience. As that continues throughout her lifetime, it means she is not saving as much for retirement, putting it into a 401k, she is not, um, you can think of all the things that savings, you know, things you might want to be saving for, a house eventually. Um, if, if somebody is, you know, gets married and has, and has children or just has children, being able to save for college funds. Over the course of a woman's lifetime, that wealth gap is over $400,000. It's significant capital and it's not paid attention to. So that when people focus on just even pay and pay gap, that's not getting down to what that means over the course of someone's entire life and how much as each year progresses. If you think of this and you're on this escalator, you know, the, the one on the person next to you is going up, 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 and you're just always behind, not for lack of anything other than some things that are direct and obvious like maybe laws that aren't requiring equal pay or paid family leave, the things that might influence a woman's life or affordable childcare. But then worse are the things that are, that are invisible. And this is when we get to gender bias. Who's being overlooked for promotions, for just for example, 
um, who's not called mm -hmm. in to the important meetings where decisions are being made. A question from Rishi Jolly at the New School. Very specific use case. You can, you can also, um, think of it also more generally where this kind of programming can find support. So the question is, how can we get funding for free English classes, ESL classes, to women in immigrant communities in New York? These women are marginalized because of the language barrier. We need to help empower them. So think of that sort of use case, immigrant women who face a language barrier. Where does that fit in the funding landscape? Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm not, I don't reside in New York, but I know that we have a couple of uh, members who are there, including the New York Women's Foundation, that is funding all kinds of programs. I'm not sure about education, but I would imagine, because so many of our members are heavily involved in um, supporting the immigrant communities and ensuring, again, that when it comes to economic opportunity, every woman is, has um, access, that they're you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure there would be something in New York. Mm -hmm. Another question from, yeah, another question from Mill Nepold at the Mara Partners. Is it on the network's radar, is there interest in how we see an intersection of women's and girls' education and addressing climate change? Project Drawdown, the book and now the movement, um, identifies educating women and girls and the gains in reproductive health as the number one solution to climate change, this uh, Mill points out. Number one, <laughs> the number one solution to climate change. Um, is that intersection something you're hearing about within the network? Yes, and have been for some time because, you know, when we, there's, there are, I would say, I'd be hard pressed to think of any societal issue that is not affecting women and girls in a way that is unique and different. And, and so, you know, we talk about, putting on this lens to look at almost anything and say, now, how is this affecting the woman in the community? And certainly when it comes to climate change and many of our members and us have been, um, you know, the bigger conferences with, with leaders in that space to talk about what's going on in these communities and predominantly where we're seeing um, impacts around the world is in poorer communities where the most marginalized people are residing oftentimes don't have a voice, aren't, um, don't have the support to advocate for change. So yes, we're in that space. We're talking to them about it as well. Um, as far as reproductive health goes, I mean, ensuring that women have and, and, and young women have access to information, um, education is absolutely critical around the world. Got it. Another question from Lisa Nugent at Maloto. Really important point she's making about this lo global localization agenda for funding. Development professionals and funding organizations often speak of need to prioritize resources toward grassroots programs in general and female-led programs in particular. Yet by definition, many of these programs are small NGOs, grassroots efforts that find it virtually impossible to access these resources. What are some of your tips, pragmatic steps that can be taken to connect uh, international donors with these very local uh, initiatives on education and women's economic empowerment? Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's one of the reasons why Women's Funding Network exists with women's foundations, you know, across the U.S. and beyond. That's what they're doing. They're looking for and working with the local, on the ground, um, the grassroots organizations, um, particularly to identify who's experiencing the challenge because they then will be the people who have the solution and, and wanting to lift them up as leaders. So, so what I would say is wherever you're located for this particular um, listener, 
look for your, the local women's foundation. And I would start there. Any advice on those who are seeking support or grants, anything you've seen people do wrong or particularly right to get seen and heard from and really break through uh, the noise in a way? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, and this doesn't sound, you know, very advanced, but I would just say it's so important to be realistic. Funders appreciate an honest assessment that's based on, on data. So that if you're identifying mm -hmm. a challenge or an issue and you're saying, here's one way we want to go about changing that to be really clear on how, but also look at the other assets that you might have access to. So who else do you know in the community? Um, do you have media outreach? Do you have other people who can be participate and help so that it begins to be this view of a very, I would say a broad effort in your, in your area to involve as many as you can make the change you're seeing and to be really honest when it doesn't go the way that you wanted it to because none of us work in a vacuum and things happen and there's external climates um, political leaders shift um, you know and, and if you're local and you're working it could be with the school district or you know whomever else you can only control what you can and so when something if something appears to be going um, differently than you'd hoped to be honest and I would say to work with the funder to to share that information Another question from Ben Bellows at Nivy Inc. He runs a tech-driven health company serving uh, consumers in emerging markets and wanted to hear your thoughts on financing for uh, building the case for self-care health products and services designed for young women in low-income markets. Of course, we've heard about you know, basic hygiene projects, uh, products not being available and just generally access to care and access to products. Anything you're sensing around the financing moving in that direction? I have not heard, if this is based in the U.S., I haven't heard of um, movement that way. More where this comes about is on the continent of, of Africa, um, different countries where, you know, you may know that around the world there are 62 million adolescent girls who are not in school. Um, there are various factors that play into that. Um, and, and one of them is that when a young woman is menstruating, she has no access to sanitary products. So there are organizations definitely that are working to, to shift that. And to it's not just, though, about providing supplies. It's, again, when you think about gender norms, to take away any shame that comes around with something as natural as, as, you know, as menstruating. And the last question we'll have time for today is from Noor Ahmed Narejo, a women's rights activist in Pakistan, who simply wanted to ask, how do we empower women in male-dominated societies where women are still denied their basic rights, domestic violence, violence of all kinds, assault, it can make so many gains and, and basic rights and basic security undermines everything. That's Any thoughts, absolutely right. Advice? And how do you systemically empower women in societies where the climate is still so hostile anywhere in the world. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, you know, even here in the U.S. where violence, you know, it's, it's one in three women will experience violence in her lifetime by, by a partner. Um, you look at other countries and it's just, it's, it is amazing that that is 
the state in which women live, where again, that's become what seems to be, it's assumed that it's normal where women will live in violence. Um, and as you're saying to the caller from Pakistan, and that, that would be, that's a norm. What I can say is there are many organizations working to shift that. It is, it takes, it takes a long time because you have to work within the communities themselves to talk to the men, to talk to the women. Um, the Asia Foundation I know is doing work in Pakistan, in, in other countries to do very local programs and, and talk to, um, again, it's, it's not the women and the girls. And as you know, one of my speakers that we heard from recently from um, A Call to Men says, why do we call this a woman's issue? It's not, it's a man's issue, right? This whole notion of violence. And so I would just say, you know, to any the brothers and the sisters calling it from other countries to, to know that it is shifting. It may seem so glacial that it's, it's, it's going slowly, but with things like the Me Too movement and Time's Up and um, the, the sustainable development goals, there is so much focus being paid now. And if you think of it as, Sometimes what has to come first is the awareness and a global awareness, and then the money follows. And I do believe that's what's happening now. Cynthia Nemo, President and CEO of the Women's Funding Network, thank you so much for joining us and for taking all of our questions at BP Talk. Thank you so much, Lara.